Okay, how's that sound? Is that loud enough? Yeah. <clears throat> Three, two, one. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. So it's Saturday, October 16th. This is my colleague Elodie Reed, the lead reporter on today's episode. I am in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom in the town named Brownington, which is on the eastern side of Interstate 91, just north of Lake Willoughby. And it is currently raining outside. I'm sitting in my car in this sort of grassy field parking area, uh, right outside a rare donkey rescue. And I actually met some of those donkeys earlier today. That's our oldest donkey down there. He's 38 years old. And he came I am not here for the donkeys, as great as they are. I'm actually here for this fundraiser dinner. It's um, for this baby named Levi. And Levi was born last winter in need of some pretty serious medical care. And so this dinner is the final one in a series of dinners to benefit baby Levi. And I've been told that at one of those dinners, a thousand people walked through, which seems like a lot. But in the hour I was at this dinner, definitely saw like multiple hundreds of people here. Um, I've also been told that a man donated a motorcycle to benefit baby Levi. And at this final dinner tonight, uh, there's also an auction. Um, Items like a quilt, beautiful like white quilt with a blue star in the middle. Um, books, saw some guns, saw some cameras, nail polish, and, uh, yeah, I'm saying all of this into my microphone right now because while I was invited to this dinner and turning onto Cemetery Lane past a sign that says benefit dinner four to six and auction six to it was on the condition that as soon as i pulled into the parking lot okay access i would leave my audio equipment behind uh and i'm going to turn my recorder off now and the reason i don't have sound from this dinner why i was like very specifically asked to not record is because a lot of the attendees they happen to be Amish Welcome to Brave Little State VPR's people-powered journalism project Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, Elodie Reed takes us to Brownington in the Northeast Kingdom. It's an area where more than a dozen Amish families have moved since 2015. 
Amish are looking for land that's, uh, that's affordable. Um, they're looking to take over small farms. Their arrival is what prompted our latest winning question. Why are the Amish moving to Vermont? How are they doing in a state considered secular? Maybe you've seen the Amish here or elsewhere, or have a picture in your head of what they look like. The women with long dresses and head coverings, the men with wide-brimmed hats, suspenders, and beards, the horse and buggies. However, most of this story isn't going to be about how the Amish in this state are different from other Vermonters. Instead, we're going to explore relationships between the two. Because, at least in Orleans County, the Amish and their neighbors seem to get along pretty well. They work together. And there's no issue made of the fact that I'm a woman working out of a woman's role in the Amish community. They care for each other. We started talking and Sue said, well, you know I'm going to be alone up here. And he looked at her and said, no, you will never be alone up here. We're right down the street. They even go golfing together. We saw an Amish couple, an older Amish couple, chipping onto the green. Um, And they were part of a foursome with these two kingdom boys. We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Our question asker for this episode is Dean Lierke of Altamont, Kansas. Dean told us over email that he's a retired mechanical engineer, and he has a number of Amish friends. He said he's curious about the Amish in Vermont because he's interested in their migrations out of, quote, traditional states like Pennsylvania and Ohio. When I saw this question in the BLS voting round, I really wanted to report it out because I have some personal interest in this topic. One reason is because of the way I grew up. I was raised as a Christian scientist, and similar to the Amish, I was taught to set myself apart from the wider world. It was something I became more aware of as I got older. How did you think about being a Christian scientist when you were growing up? Did it feel completely normal, or did it always, or in part, feel kind of like an odd fit? This is my colleague Josh Crane interviewing me. I mean, just normal and not something I really thought about um, too much. I I had like an inkling that the things that my family did were were different. Christian scientists are kind of associated with like this idea of people not going to doctors. I didn't go to the doctor until I was uh, an adult um, when I made that decision on my own. During this conversation, I told Josh about how in high school and college, my friends would learn I didn't get annual physicals or shots, and then they would ask me why. I would try and explain how the whole no doctor thing wasn't really about doctors as much as it was about the way I perceived my own identity. I, like, didn't think about my body very much growing up. I, like, 
I very literally like didn't conceptualize of myself as human for a really long time. What? And, wait, 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 wait. What does that mean? It means that like I thought of myself as a spiritual idea, like very literally until maybe I was like 25 years old. Wait, I need, hold on. I need, this, this is like a very foreign concept to me. And so how can you literally think of yourself as a spiritual idea? Um, by just like not like purposefully looking and like thinking away from your body. Like whenever I like felt something in my body, like I would immediately be like, nope, I'm spiritual and like focus on that. I've since moved away from Christian science. I'll get into that more later on. With that kind of background, I do wonder about people in other religious communities whose practices and thinking go against general societal convention. What do they hold on to? And how do they navigate that pressure to join everyone else? The second reason I wanted to help answer Dean's question about the Amish community in Vermont is because my family also has Amish friends down in Pennsylvania. My mom and dad were living in Philadelphia in the late 80s before I was born, and a mutual acquaintance connected them with this Amish couple, Mary and Josh. My mom and Josh are no longer with us, and my dad and Mary didn't want to be recorded for this story. But I did chat with my dad during a recent visit at his house, and I did get in touch with Mary, eventually. I tried her old phone number, which didn't work, and as I remember it, her phone was in the barn anyway. So I reached out with a handwritten letter. Mary eventually called back on a different number. Here's what I've gathered from both of them. My mom especially hit it off with Mary over their shared love for quilting. I still have a small patchwork blanket that my mom provided fabric for and that Mary made me. It's bright, multicolored, and cozy, and about the size of a twin bed. I've sat with it spread across my lap while writing this story. And my dad says that when I was a baby, I actually took my first steps in Mary and Josh's farmhouse. My first memory starts with standing in their basement, next to a giant wooden table, and asking about the white, sheer head coverings the Amish women wore, shaped like hearts on the back of their heads. I told Josh, Brave Little States Josh, about the memory, in which the other Josh, Amish Josh, joked around with me. And I, like, saw pins, like, not, like, safety pins, but, like, you know, sewing pins. And I thought that, like, the women pinned the covering, like, to their head. And I was, and Josh was, like, making fun of me for that, like, telling me, like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. For the record, Mary points out Amish women have a band they pin their coverings to, not their heads. Also, according to Mary, her husband Josh was not only a funny guy, but a traveler. That's why, after my parents moved to New Hampshire, Mary and Josh took the train up to visit us. They stopped by my grandparents' house, too. My grandfather, Poppy, he remembers Mary and Josh coming over and wanting to buy souvenirs at the local drugstore. So they go out of our home and walk up to the sidewalk, and as they're walking down there, you never, because they, of all their regalia that they had on, their, their Amish clothing and like that, 
I thought people were going to get in an accident stretching their head and looking at them as they walked over to the drugstore. My family traveled back to Pennsylvania to see Mary and Josh several times. There's one moment from those trips that has stayed with my grandmother, who I call Gaga. We were stopped at the gas station to get gas. And on that side of the street, it was so busy, you know, regular people walking, running, and whatever, about houses, you know, like we live in. And on the other side of the street, it was very quiet. Just across the road, there was, I could see a big, beautiful Amish farm. And I saw a couple of horses and wagons go by. And it was very quiet, and it looked like two different worlds just across the street. How could that happen? Two different worlds. During my phone call with Mary, I asked whether it was odd for her and Josh to be friends with my non-Amish parents. And she said not really. Plenty of Amish people befriend other folks. My parents, she says, happen to be very nice, open people, which is why they all got along. And I can say on behalf of my family, Mary and Josh and their family are wonderful and generous. Before our recent phone call, I hadn't spoken with Mary in over a decade, and it was so easy to talk and catch up. I'm grateful to know her family. A note before we go any further. Brave Little State has been wrestling over how to approach this episode. We prefer to report stories with and for communities, rather than about them. In this case, though, the question we've been asked to answer did not come from an Amish person. If this story were for the Amish, and created with the Amish, I'm not sure we would have a story at all. That's because the Amish try to avoid attention. They're dedicated to humility. Recognition of the individual, through images or audio or any kind of recording, is generally regarded as prideful behavior. And even my family friend Mary who has known me as long as I've been alive, she asked me to leave out too many personally identifying details in this story, which I did. So today, you will not be hearing any audio of Amish voices. The Amish people I did speak to, no microphones or cameras were present during our conversations. As for the interviews I did record, it's with people who know this community in one way or another. And as much as I'd like our audience to include the Amish, they will probably not be the ones listening to or reading the story. I do plan to send a printed copy to Mary and anyone in Brownington's Amish community who's interested. That leaves the more likely audience for this episode. Those of us whom the Amish would term, quote, the English. Doesn't matter if you're from England or not, as long as you're not Amish, you are the English. So for all you English out there, here's a little introduction. Amish 101, if you will. Lesson number one. The Amish are considered an ethnic group, which means they're a social group with common national and cultural traditions. They have their own language, a German dialect called Pennsylvania Dutch, their own way of dressing, and shared Swiss German and German ancestry. They also generally only marry people in their own population. Lesson number two. The Amish are Anabaptists, the people who were formed inside of Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 1500s. It's a long, pretty complicated history, 
But what you need to know is the Anabaptists were persecuted badly by both religious and civil authorities. They fled to various parts of Northern Europe and later to Pennsylvania after European colonists violently uprooted indigenous people there. Throughout their migrations, the Anabaptists continued to splinter among themselves into various groups, including the Mennonites, some of whom also live in Vermont. For our purposes, just know the Amish, also known as the Old Order Amish, are the most conservative of the bunch. And lesson number three, it's a tricky business to accurately define religious beliefs for an entire group of people, but broadly speaking, the Amish follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. They are pacifists, and they separate themselves, mostly, from the rest of the world to preserve the purity of their church. They also conduct church inside their homes. The Amish first arrived in Pennsylvania in the 1700s. Since then, they've continued to settle elsewhere in the U.S. Now there's well, well over 500 settlements of Amish in, in North America and well over 2,000 individual churches within all of those settlements. That's Corey Anderson. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Penn State's Population Research Institute. He studies population and migration trends among the Amish, and he says their numbers continue to grow, doubling about every two decades. They now include about 400,000 individuals. That's due to high birth rates, about seven children per woman, according to Corey. And they also have a really high retention rate. Some groups can boast a retention rate of close to 100% of their young people will choose to stay among the Amish. So um, all of those factors combined mean that the Amish population is growing very rapidly. This growth has taken place almost entirely in rural America. And they're continuing to look for places across the country where they can replicate their uh, religious and ethnic lifestyle in rural places. And Vermont has become one of those rural places attractive for Amish settlement. There have been several stories reported by other outlets covering the first part of our question askers query. Why Amish families move specifically to the area around Brownington? Most Amish people those reporters spoke to expressed reluctance to discuss their motivations, apart from wanting to farm and live peacefully on the land. Brave Little State has decided not to ask those same people that same question again. But Corey Anderson says there are some patterns that can explain why the Amish moved to Vermont, like horrible traffic incidents in some of the more populous Amish communities in Pennsylvania and Ohio. There's just this series of uh automobile accidents with horse and buggies that have seriously injured people or taken their lives. Vermont is also something of a natural fit for the Amish lifestyle. Amish are looking for land that's, uh, that's affordable. Um, they're looking to take over small farms. They are looking for places where the population growth is relatively neutral or even a little bit of negative population growth. They are looking to stay away from cities with a lot of sprawl coming out into the rural fringes. They are looking for places where there are small towns nearby where they can engage a local economy. Both selling their products, be it agricultural products or woodworking products or any number of uh, hand trades they might get into, 
Um, but they're also looking for um, banks and post office and a grocery store, just some of the basic necessities nearby. According to previous news stories and local residents, the Amish families started showing up in the Brownington area about six years ago. And suddenly I turned around and there were three guys dressed in blue suits and straw hats kind of standing there politely waiting to get my attention. That's Jane Greenwood, a 72-year-old Brownington resident and retired sawmill owner. She still builds and farms and works with her tractor. And she says she was doing a job at the local Old Stone House Museum when she met one of the first Amish families looking to settle in Vermont. So I turned around and said, oh, welcome, greetings. And they weren't terribly talkative, but they had a map of Brownington and said, we're looking for a piece of land to buy that where we can grow watermelons. I you want to grow watermelons in Brownington? <laughs> and they said, yep, it would need to be a kind of a south slope. Jane happened to know of an older couple with land well-suited to watermelon growing. They were willing to sell to this Amish family. And since then, they have been growing watermelons. <laughs> Beautiful. Just hundreds and hundreds of watermelons. Jane says there were three original families to move to the area, and since then, their brothers and sisters and children have gone off and bought individual farms. She estimates there are around 30 landowners total. Others I've spoken with, including Amish people, put the number of families somewhere between 17 and 18. The Amish now have their own school in Brownington, the only Amish school in the state, according to state education officials. And they've gotten to know their neighbors. After the break, I talked to a few more of them. Yep, yep. Uh, it's the Amish donuts that got us. That's right after this. It's Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Today, my colleague Elodie Reed is answering Dean Lerke's question about the Amish in Vermont. It's a two-part question. And now that Elodie has explained why the Amish are moving here, we can turn to how they are doing. Here's Elodie. In answering the second part of our question asker's question about how the Amish are doing in a state considered secular, I should say right up front, Vermont is definitely a secular place. In a previous episode, Brave Little State explored how we're among the least religious states in the country. But I guess I also want to pause here and remember what population researcher Corey Anderson said about what the Amish look for when settling somewhere new. They aren't looking for hyper-religious places. They're looking for land, not a lot of other people, local amenities like a post office and a bank and a grocery store, and a local economy. Sound familiar, Vermont? That last part, the local economy, is how most Amish and non-Amish people seem to connect with one another around Brownington. For instance, Jane Greenwood, the former sawmill owner and builder, says she works carpentry with her Amish neighbors from time to time and has leased out some land to the Amish, too. They're just wonderful to work with. It's easy to come to an agreement. They're clear when they agree, and they're very clear when they don't agree. And there's no strings attached. It's just very simple. Even when Jane is doing work, that's usually reserved for the men in Amish tradition. Recently, she says she was helping load a sawmill that her Amish neighbor had sold. I spent the day working with him and a couple of Mennonites who came from New York State with a driver, and 
we spent the day rigging that sawmill and engine and getting it loaded on the trailer. And I was noticing, in fact, the driver called, addressed me as a he. But Jane says she also feels accepted as who she is. I don't feel any gender alienation or considerations or anything. When I grab my end of something heavy to pick up, they have no qualms about it. And there's no issue made of the fact that I'm a woman working out of a woman's role in the Amish community. That sort of togetherness, despite cultural difference, is something my colleague at Vermont Public Radio, Pete Hirschfeld, has noticed too. He and his wife have a camp in Westmore, which is the next town over from Brownington. They often stop at the roadside stands where the Amish sell food. You have homemade pickles, strawberries in the spring, hand-churned butter from the cows that they're milking, wax candles, quilts, pastries, pies. Pete's favorite are the pickles and the fruit and cream cheese hand pies. And when I visited Brownington, they were even selling an amazing potholder shaped like a pair of jorts. What we've also been sort of able to see going to those farm stands is the extent to which they've turned into um, little hubs for the community. And so when you go there, it's not uncommon to see a driveway full of people. And a lot of them are tourists for sure, but a lot of them are locals that go there on a daily and weekly basis. And then Pete has this story, which he points to as another example of how Amish and non-Amish have become entwined in Orleans County. My wife and I uh, were not good at it, but we like to play golf every week or so. And there's a golf course in Barton, which adjoins Westmore and Brownington. And uh, we were on the eighth hole and we looked ahead and we saw an Amish couple, an older Amish couple, chipping onto the green. And they were part of a foursome with these two kingdom boys. Um, And I don't know how they met, I didn't talk to them, but it was just like, wow. Some circumstance unfolded where they invited, or maybe the Amish people love to play golf, and they invited these two people they met in the kingdom to play with them, but like, you know, there's an intimacy to playing golf with somebody. You're stuck together for two and a half or three hours, and there's going to be a lot of small talk and getting to know each other. And so it just made me realize that, like, wow, there, there are people here who count Amish as their friends. As for the Amish who count English as their friends, several Amish people I spoke with said they like living in the area and are friendly with their neighbors. One man told me the relationships he has with the English are, quote, like neighbors should be. We help each other. They help, for instance, when a reporter gets her Prius stuck in one of Brownington's grassy fields after a hard rain. I was about to drive through an extremely muddy patch when two Amish men came running up to the side of my car, told me to go slow, and pushed my Prius forward as it slipped and slid through the worst of it. I think you're going to make it, one of the men told me. And yep, I did. There's one connection between Amish and non-Amish that feels particularly special in Brownington. And it all started over donuts. Yep, yep. Uh, It's the Amish donuts that got us. This is Barry Fisher. She helps run Arnold's Rescue Center with a woman named Sue Arnold. 
It's a wildlife rehabilitation center that was originally based in Florida. And as Barry explains it, she and Sue were driving around the Northeast Kingdom one summer. That's when they bought the Amish donuts. They pulled over to eat them, Barry says, in the front yard of this property, which had a really pretty view. There was a for sale sign in front of it, so that's how it happened. A couple years ago, the women moved their donkeys and horses to Brownington, establishing the northern branch of their rescue center. That's around the time, Barry says, their relationship began with the Amish. Can I tell him, tell him the story, Sue? Sue's right here. Yeah. Okay, Sue is a widow. She, you know, about seven years ago lost her husband and then lost her second daughter to cancer. And so we were standing in the front yard and one of the Amish neighbors came by in his buggy and he pulled in with his wife and kids. And we started talking and Sue said, you know, well, you know, I'm going to be alone up here. And he looked at her and said, no, you will never be alone up here. We're right down the street. And took our hearts away. And has continued to take our hearts away. It's the same kind of place you'd like to live. Since the rescue center moved to Brownington, Barry says the Amish have continued to be a source of support, building the rescue's barn and arena. They will come at a moment's notice if we have an animal that gets stuck somewhere or needs to be, something needs to be fixed. They'll come here in a heartbeat. And in return, Barry and Sue do what they can. They drive the Amish when they need a ride. And more recently, after an Amish family gave birth to a baby named Levi, who needed procedures on his heart, Barry has transported the family back and forth to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. She's become the go-between for the family and Boston Children's Hospital, too. Barry and Sue have also provided the space for the fundraiser dinners we talked about at the top of this episode. The goal is to help the family pay some of the medical expenses, which Barry estimates will add up to $1 million before the end of the year. So far, Barry says they've raised between $7,500 and $10,000 at each dinner. In the course of reporting this episode, what I found myself wishing for most was to speak with baby Levi's parents. I really wanted to understand how were they feeling about this outpouring of support for their child from people outside their Amish community. I did get to speak with one member of baby Levi's family when I stopped by the recent fundraiser dinner without my recording gear. This woman said they were definitely appreciative of the community coming out, and she wanted to thank the people who have participated in these dinners. She said it was truly a blessing. During that conversation, we were standing next to the food table where all the Amish women were milling about. A little ways away, the Amish men kind of clumped together, too. As for all the non-Amish neighbors, they were mostly sitting down to eat. There was certainly some intermingling, but also very obvious separation. As much as we've talked about togetherness in this episode, we can't forget there are intentional ways the Amish will always set themselves apart. And Corey Anderson, the population researcher we heard from earlier, says the visible ways in which the Amish do differentiate from broader society, their dress, their choices around using or not using, electricity, cars, and other modern conveniences, can be incorrectly interpreted. Um, the Amish have been selective about what sort of practices they're, enga they're engaging in. 
but it's not because they're trying to live during the 1800s. When we look at the Amish, we see differences in technology practices. We see difference in clothing practices. And there's going to be a lot of changes within their technology and clothing. But that clothing and technology more represents a deeper value system. And that value system tends to be against pride and against getting a lot of new ideas from other systems besides the church and, by extension, uh, the scriptures. In the end, Corey says, the ultimate goal is to preserve their church, and by extension, the Amish community's very existence. They see their church as this vehicle that allows them to impart Christian beliefs and practices to the next generations. They view every generation as in this battle to keep the purity of the church so that it can be passed on to the next generation. All to the end goal of we want our members, when they die, to be found faithful in God's eyes and and to be accepted into heaven. Corey says between having that narrative to explain life and death, the kind of community mutual aid the Amish provide one another, and then the social pressure to conform, those are all motivations to stay within the system. If you're in a system and there's really nothing wrong with it, most people are not going to make drastic life changes unless there's really something wrong going on. They'll probably stay put where they're at. Some, though, do not stay put. Yes, the Amish have that sense of community and belonging, but there's a different kind of belonging that comes with being where people do understand you. That's the voice of Saloma Miller Furlong. She spoke with former VPR staffer Patty Daniels back in 2014 about her memoir, Bonnet Strings, an Amish woman's ties to two worlds. Saloma left her Amish community twice to move to Vermont. I could not, no matter how hard I tried, I could not tamp down the the questions that just kept boiling right up from within me. And my mother used to say to me, oh, Saloma, if you only knew how much better off you are without asking those questions, maybe you'd stop asking them. What kinds of questions were you asking? Things like, why can't we have bicycles, but we can ride in somebody else's car? Why can't we have a Christmas tree like the Sycoras across the street? Why can't we take pictures in school? And then later on, as I got older, I would ask things like, if God really doesn't want people to ask questions, then why did he give me such an inquisitive nature? And those were just questions that the Amish could not or would not answer. And so having that curious, feisty, adventurous spirit that I had from the start just did not fit into a community where the women and the girls are expected to be demure and quiet and submissive. The community I grew up in, Christian Science, fit me for a while, until it didn't anymore. About five years ago, I started having heart palpitations, which changed everything. And so, you know, I like, I prayed like I always had. Here I am again, talking with my colleague Josh. And yeah, it just it just was not going away. And so more than a year after they started, I like 
kind of like went through this crisis of faith, not just because of this, my like heart palpitations, but I just like, I wasn't feeling God in the same way I used to. And so I was like, I felt very sort of like alone. And I decided to go to a doctor for the first time. I'm okay now, but I don't practice Christian science anymore. It's not because I have something against it, really. It just doesn't feed my spirituality like it used to. And it doesn't explain the world to me anymore. I haven't really replaced my religion as much as I've let it go. I grew up sort of like shutting the world out a lot because I was so focused on like understanding my spiritual identity. And the older I got, the more sort of like I realized how little I knew about so many things. It's definitely why I became a journalist. And I guess like I just enjoy or like it just it makes me have a sense of like connectedness and depth to just like learn more about things around me. And to learn about people like the Amish. Perhaps what I've learned most though in reporting this episode is that just because we have a question or a curiosity, especially about a community that's not our own, that doesn't mean that community owes us an answer. Having been on the receiving end of similar kinds of questions about Christian science, I learned to handle them with patience and grace, to even expect them. But it might just be better sometimes to let people be. A Lodi Read. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Dean Lairkey for the great question. If you have a question about Vermont, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for the BLS newsletter, check out our archive, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. This episode was reported by Elodie Reed and produced by Josh Crane. Mix and sound design by Myra Flynn and me. Editing and digital production by all of us. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Jane Greenwood, Barry Fisher, Corey Anderson, Dan McClure, Donald Craybill, Pete Hirschfeld, Elodie's dad, George, her family friend, Mary, and her grandparents, Gaga and Poppy, who at 91 and 89 years old are making their public radio debut. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. If you're a fan of the show, please make a gift at bravelittlestate.org donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. <laughs>